This is the Angry Birds Bird Minute, sponsored by Angry Birds for their 15th anniversary, where we tell you all about a cool bird that may or may not be angry. This week's bird is the loggerhead shrike. The loggerhead shrike is a medium-sized predatory songbird that lives across most of the United States and Mexico. A striking gray and white bird with a black mask, they get the name loggerhead from the large size of their head relative to their body. They prefer to live in open, grassy habitat with scattered shrubs and trees where they perch and scan for prey. With a diet consisting of large insects, small rodents, frogs, lizards, and even small birds, the loggerhead shrike can carry prey as large as itself. But are they angry? The loggerhead shrike has the nickname Butcher Bird because of their habit of dispatching prey on thorns and barbed wire. On a scale of 1 to angry, we rate the loggerhead shrike as fearsome. This is Wild Green Streams. I'm Rhett. I'm Io. I'm Curtis. And with us today is nature communicator Griff Griffith. Welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. Super stoked to be here. So tell us about yourself. What do you do? Oh, man. I'm just going to start with all the tough questions. Yeah. <laughs> just right off the bat, in the hot seat, the hard-hitting questions. You have a five-year plan, a 20-year plan. Even we can get those are on the docket as well. <laughs> yeah. So I wear a couple of different hats. Actually, I only wear one hat. I wear this hat all the time. Which is an excellent one, I have to say. Thank you. I am the spokes, one of the spokespeople for Redwoods Rising. So mostly I do their social media and then take people on walks. So what's Redwoods Rising? It's a collaboration between Redwood National and State Parks, the Yurok Tribe, Save the Redwood League, and we are trying to restore previously clear-cut, destroyed, and I can get into it deeper. But yeah, we're we're trying to heal this land. For lots of different reasons. And then also I have a podcast with Michael Hawk. He's the producer, founder of Jumpstart Nature Podcast. And so we just did our first pilot season. Woo-hoo! Congratulations. Yeah. Curtis and I were on Michael's other podcast previously. Oh, yeah. 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 Michael, he, he has interviewed a lot of people. Yeah. And then my third job is I work for a website site, St. Tours, and I take people for walks. And so I have three jobs. Keeping busy. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's no rest for the wicked. You know, I don't have any kids or anything like that. So I'm trying to do everything I can to make people fall in love with nature Mm -hmm. and still be able to pay the bills at the same time. Tell us more about Redwoods Rising. There's 4.6% of the old growth redwood forest left. So we logged. And when I say we, I mean colonizers and their descendants. We logged over 95% of the old growth forests. And the way the land was acquired is another scandalous story I won't get into, but let's just say that it was left in ruins. Most of it was left in ruins. So a lot of the companies that ClearCut logged, they did this before there was any regulations, aka protections. And so they would use creek beds as roads. So they would just throw a bunch of logs in the creek and they'd throw a bunch of dirt on top of that. And then water would run underneath the logs and they would just pull and they would just drive up and down these creek ways or they'd pull logs down these creek ways. Or they'd build splash dams where they put all these big logs and created this dam and they get they'd flood this area and get all the big logs in there and then they'd blow up the dam, you know, this like huge major avalanche, you know, and they'd come down, they'd kill everything in their path. And this is why we have a salmon closure for the second year in a row. Commercial fisheries closure is because we destroyed all of our salmon habitat. And one of the ways we did that was through clear cut logging. So Redwood Rising is trying to restore all this area and it's about 70,000 acres. So it's one of the biggest restoration projects in the United States, I think number three. And it's interesting because this land was acquired after it had been clear cut. And these companies that did all this stuff without regulations, 
they all went out of business and stuff. So they didn't have to pay for any of the healing process for any of the fixing. Mm-hmm. So they bounced, but before they bounced, they aerial seeded the whole thing with Doug Seed, which wasn't the native tree there. It was redwoods. So mm-hmm. they clear cut the redwoods and then they aerial seeded with helicopters, rodenticide covered seeds. So the reason why that extra sucks is because after they clear cut, so all the animals are like, what are we supposed to do now? And then the broadleaf plants started mm-hmm. coming up. Broadleaf plants often have nuts and berries and good things to eat, right? And so all the animals were like, hey, we're finally going to get something to eat. And the lumber companies were like, psych. And they flew 2,4-D, which is a broadleaf defoliant over it. So they killed all the berry plants and flowers and everything was coming up. And then they got in helicopters and they spread out rodenticide covered seed everywhere. So anything that survived... The previous two applications probably died on the third one. So it was complete destruction. And then because they buried all these streams and stuff. Not to interrupt, but what time frame for this? When are we talking? Okay, good question. So clear-cut logging started, you know, right after this place was colonized in the 1860s, I believe. Mm -hmm. But the 1950s and 60s and 70s saw some of the worst clear-cutting in the area where I work. Sure. So we're trying to restore this area, and that's pretty much the gist of it. So it's salmon habitat restoration. It's bio. It's removing these non-native trees. It's planting redwood trees. It's removing 300 miles of roads, logging roads, Mm -hmm. uh, so it doesn't destabilize the banks and cause all kinds of erosion. I imagine for this massively important project, I can imagine there's a lot of logistical difficulties in getting this done. So what are some of the main things that you're working on? Is it simply removing invasives? Is it replanting the redwoods? Is it, you know, removing other things that are remnants from this era of exploitation? So what are the, some of the challenges that are involved in this very large scale project you're working on? There's a million, but you know, if there's any restoration, so listening and I think about all the paperwork and stuff that must've been involved in this, there was tons, but the whole area got to go under environmental review as one giant unit. And that really saved a lot of time. And that was really, really helpful happened years ago. So this is, we've been doing this for five years, but we've been working in these watersheds for decades. When I was in the California Conservation Corps, I led crews doing salmon habitat restoration and tree planting here. So now where we're at, where we're at in year five is we're just doing the work. So we're doing biomass removal, which means we're taking out a lot of those densely packed dug firs. And they're really super packed. Like they're packed and they're so densely, there's nothing growing on the forest floor. Okay. So it's just basically like a vertical bonfire pit waiting to catch on fire and burn to the ground. And Mm -hmm. meanwhile, the old growth that exists in islands in the middle of the sea of dog hair thickets, there's a lot of animals there that can't travel to the next old growth forest. They won't survive the trip because there's nothing to eat on the way. So anything small is not moving between the islands of fragmented habitat. So y'all, you know, replant an area with redwoods. What's the time scale before that becomes usable by wildlife? Oh, as soon as the plant's in the ground. Well, redwoods doesn't support a lot of wildlife, to be honest with you. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of redwood trees support very little wildlife, which is why when people go into these old growth forests, they're like, it's so quiet. It's so beautiful. They must know that I love them. And I'm like, well, actually what it is, is the redwoods don't support insects. And so there's hardly any birds here. And that's why it's so quiet. Mm -hmm. The area already is habitat. So, you know, there's always something that benefits from denuded habitat. But once we start removing extra trees and spacing up the trees more, light can get in there. And that's when your diversity of plants mm-hmm. can grow. And that's when you start getting diversity of animals. So it's like after all the treatments is when it really starts taking off. And this accelerates old growth characteristics. So like these areas would probably heal anyways, eventually, but it would take thousands of years. And we, and we don't have that much time, especially with our salmon disappearing. 
So we're accelerating these old growth characteristics much, much faster. And it's better for sequestering carbon and it's better for all the wildlife that live there. That reminds me of restoration of longleaf forests over in the East Coast. I'm based in Florida and some places that I work, I talked to the land managers and they initially planted wiregrass around just in certain convenient spots and expected it to spread from there. Yeah. And then they realized that it's a drop seed. So it's dispersal rate is like a couple inches per year. Yeah. <laughs> and they did the math and it would take like thousands of years for their protected area to get covered. So now they've gone through and, and hit it, you know, evenly all across, but it's such a wildly faster process than nature would actually do on its own to restore some of these areas. Yeah, restoration is new. And, you know, being part of this huge, I've been doing restoration for decades. I worked for the Nature Conservancy, CCC, like I've done Wildlife Conservation Society. I've worked for a lot of different orgs doing restoration. And I'll tell you, like the way we did it when I started, when I was 18, I did my first restoration project when I was 18 years old. It's changed. It's we've been informed. We've learned from our mistakes. We are still learning from our mistakes. So no one's I don't think anybody's really has it totally dialed yet, mm -hmm. but we're we're moving in the right direction. And Redwoods Rising has uh, learned from a lot of mistakes in the past before it formed formed. So right. a lot of biologists who became Redwood Rising biologists had been doing restoration for years and, and brought all their knowledge that they had gleaned by making so many mistakes. So it's been really cool for us, but we're still learning stuff. Restoration still changing. And I can imagine you have people working on the project that are using Redwood Rising, Redwood Rising, say that's a five times fast, as the opportunity to learn more, like an experiment in progress of new restoration, saying, okay, this works here, this doesn't work here. So that way, you know, for the next project that they're working on, they could take all of the things that they've learned and be even more efficient. Yes. And we have tons of examples of that. But yeah, we're learning a lot. We have, there's a lot of studies. We're really close to Cal Poly Humboldt and we have a Redwood Rising Apprentices program. So college students come. And so like, we're also not just teaching people how to do restoration from our mistakes and our models and our successes, but we're also training the next generation of restoration professionals because we can have yeah. up to 30 Redwood Rising Apprentices per each summer. That's also been a really, really good thing for us. Oh, that's mm -hmm. awesome. I know from, you know, studying wildlife ecology and stuff in college, those things like that where you can get the hands-on day-to-day, like really work in the system is like yeah. where you can learn the most of what is this like? What are the things that you really need on the ground? I, I believe that everybody should pay their dues in the field. I'm I worked in the field until three years ago, so you don't have to pay it as long as I did. <laughs> I I love being in the field. I, my goal when I was a little kid was to be outside my whole entire life, and I've mostly been successful at that. And having field experience, is it makes you practical restorationist because how things should happen ideally and how they happen in practice are often two different monsters, especially oh, yeah. when it comes to like timing of things, like how long things take. And so I think if anybody's interested in the Redwood Rising Apprentice Program, they should go to redwoodrising.org redwoodsrising.org. And, and also we have tons and tons of information if people want to try to copy us, which I hope everybody tries to copy us because we're doing solutionary work. Something yeah. I like to ask people who have spent a lot of time in the field, because everyone gets at least a couple of these, is what's like a wild story that you've had from out there? What's like a day that was just like this one crazy day outside? Oh gosh, I'm going to have to think about that for a minute because there's a lot of crazy days, but I got into a big giant fight with an elk one time. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> And that sucked. So I was doing stream restoration. It was when I worked for state parks when I was like 26 or 27. And I was going out there and the crew was waiting for me and I was coming and, and I was like, you know, you guys go out there. I'll be out there in a minute. And so I'm dilla-dallying around, you know, grabbing like last minute tools and stuff. And I come out and I'm, I'm walking and then 
I looked down and at my feet is this calf, this elk calf. And I was like, oh, I almost stepped on you. And then all of a sudden I heard something. I looked and here comes mom and she chased me. This was a grudge holding elk. Like of all the elk I've ever mm -hmm. met, this one was the pettiest. And she chased me around trees. She jumped up. She tried to hoof slap me. Yeah. You do not want to get hoof slapped by an elk. No. And so like I kept running through thick stuff thinking she wouldn't be able to follow me. She was following me. I got in the creek, I ran, she was faster in the creek, so I got back up, and she chased me all the way to the project site. I couldn't believe it. She left her baby behind for like 15 <laughs> minutes just to beat me up. It was terrible, yeah. but I got away. But the elk story, I think, scared me. I mean, and it's funny because people always say, have you had mountain lion experiences? And yeah, I've seen them. They always run. Uh, bear yeah. experiences, yeah, they almost always run. But elk, elk come after me. Moose have come after me. You know, it's it's people rarely... don't give large herbivores enough credit yeah, for like say. being as dangerous and scary mm -hmm. as they are. Like everyone's always worried about the wolves and the mountain lions and everything. And I'm like, have you have you seen an elk? Have you seen a moose? They're yeah. they're because and it's, I think especially because they're prey animals. They're like their fight or flight is very strong. And so yeah. if they pick fight, it could be over. It could be over, yeah. And it's, that wasn't the only time elk come after me. That was the, the just the one time where I was like, "Really, you're still after me?" She's not giving up. And elk are really big. Where I'm, I'm a um, group in Ford and everything, so we just have the white-tailed deer. And I've been in other places, you know, further up north where they get a little bigger. But like elk get really big, and they have compared to the white-tailed deer, their antlers are enormous. And I'm like, I would not want to be on the receiving end of of one of those for sure. And their hooves too. <laughs> I could show you some right now. I'm looking at a hundred of them. If you guys want to see some, oh, totally. Love. Yeah, let me let me see if I can move. I'll move my computer outside. We're going on a trip. Yeah, I live in I live in the Northern California Serengeti. So while you guys were talking, I saw two Northern Harriers doing some kind of weird fight. I can't zoom you guys, huh? So we'll see if you guys can see this. Sure. Can you see? Let's see. Ooh. Oh, I think so. Actually, the brown spots way out there. Yep. 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 If oh, I can nice. zoom, this could seem better. I live like by myself. I don't have any close by neighbors besides these elk. So, and several other wildlife. And I see porcupines all the time too, which is kind of. That's cool. Yeah. You don't hear people say, oh, I see porcupines all the time, but I do. I see them all the time. Never seen them. Um, because they love the dunes forest. So behind me is the dunes forest. And in front of me is a giant wetland grassland. Oh and, man. Um, perfect. Yeah. So perfect for a nerd, nature nerd. Yeah. Yeah. I don't go out there and try to pet the elk or sing them songs or anything or the yeah. porcupine yeah do you see them at <laughs> night <laughs> or do you see them yeah during the, the day? evening the porcupine come by i definitely do talk to the porcupine though i mean so, you gotta yeah they're super cool i've seen so. one once and it was kind of like waddling away and then like went into a tree so i didn't get to see it for very long but i would love to to see one again i'm like they're like pretty big they're pretty cryptic people don't really see them all too often so that makes it even more exciting when you do get to see one in my opinion I used to catch some when I was younger. I, and I know it's not cool. I wouldn't do that now. But I used to like love to get plastic trash bags and catch them so I could look at them close up. I mean, cans, not bags. And uh, I was going to say, I was, the I was logistics like, of trying. <laughs> <laughs> then you could swing it around the bag and use it as a weapon. <laughs> yeah. I was like, if you're if you're catching porcupines with a trash bag, that is. That kind of defeats the purpose. If you're using <laughs> material that's not quill proof. <laughs> no. Did you grow up in Northern California as well? I did. I grew up in the city, actually, and I had family that lived up in Humboldt in the country and stuff. So, like, mm -hmm. 
I grew up with a foot in both worlds, you know, very urban world and then also like a country world. And so as soon as I was 18, I moved out of the city. It wasn't for me, but I'm glad that I had that time because it was the Bay Area in California. And so I got a very, very diverse upbringing, which I didn't realize how rare that was until I got older, especially for a white guy. And so I'm super stoked that's where I was raised. And also I lived watching development happen, suburban sprawl happen. Mm -hmm. And so that's what cemented a lot of my conservation values. I think that if I wouldn't have lived there, if I would have grown up like Nebraska or Montana, someplace that wasn't as diverse, I probably would have just ended up some kind of guide for the rest of my life. I probably just sure. would have stayed in the woods and been a guide. But going out with my friends with buckets and nets and catching stickleback and salamanders and frogs and turtles, and then the next day going back and seeing stakes with pink flag around mm -hmm. our creek, and then seeing something lower, a big giant culvert, a big cement tube, and then our creek getting put under the ground. Like that killed me when I was a kid. I hated that. And I've heard of a lot of other Bay Area and LA conservationists talk about when they were kids, they would go pull out the stakes. I was definitely one of those kids because I knew what was coming. And so I watched yeah. that and it broke my heart. And when I was 12, I went and volunteered at the Wildlife Care Center. Some dramatic stuff happened and I ended up there. And I got to see all these wild animals brought in because of cats and window strikes and rodenticides. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, not only do we destroy their habitat, but we destroy the survivors. And so instead of becoming a wilderness guide who spent his whole life out like bird watching or whatever, which was probably would have happened to me, I became an activist and a restorationist. And I've been that ever since. I've always wanted a balanced view of things. Mm -hmm. So I did work, you know, because after I was doing biological surveys, like fish surveys and salmon habitat restoration, I wanted to work on a fishing boat. So I went and worked on a commercial fishing boat so I could see that side of it. I'm not one of those activists who are like, I will never. I want to know the whole picture. I've worked on commercial fishing boats. I've, I've worked for big agriculture, raising mm -hmm. the seed for the seedless watermelon. Like I totally believe that humans are going to be intertwined in the solutions for conservation issues. And I think that the best way to do that is to just like understand all aspects. What's it like working on a fishing boat? It kicked my butt. So I fought fires <laughs> a lot too. So like I was, I was on fisheries fire crews, which don't exist anymore. It's too bad because it was the best job ever. Mm -hmm. So I would do salmon surveys and fish surveys and reptile surveys until there was a fire. And then I was a firefighter. Best job. Go. Did it for four seasons. It was a dream job. I don't know if anybody does that anymore. I haven't heard of that position anymore, which is too bad. Super fun. So what was your question again? What's it like working on a fishing boat? I thought I was badass. Like I was like, I'm a firefighter. I'm badass, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, so I went up to Alaska without a boat to be on. So I'm like, and I got there. I was like the last person. And the only reason why I got a job is because someone else got seasick. I didn't even know if I got seasick. I've been on boats all my life, but not like on the ocean ocean mm -hmm. for months. Especially in Alaska. So, that's some serious ocean. Some serious ocean. I didn't realize how serious it was until I got there. <laughs> and it kicked my butt. It kicked my butt. Like I left that place whimpering. I did not think I was a badass anymore. I don't know how the where those people come from, but I'll tell you what. One thing I noticed about all the fishermen is that I was way bigger than them. So I think part of it is you got to be small. Interesting. <laughs> like, I didn't see anybody as big as me last very long. You know, it's like sure. it was small people, men, men and women, just like people who were compact and small, mm -hmm. and low to the ground, low center of gravity. Low yeah. center of gravity. <laughs> must have been, but yeah, I got my butt kicked. I wasn't the only one that got their butt kicked, but I'll tell you what, firefighters. I know y'all think you're tough, but I think fishermen got one on. <laughs> I think they're being naturally selected by the boom swinging back and forth. And <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Like, oh, you're tall. Yeah. Like I, 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 I used to do some environmental education on a schooner and 
being six foot one, that was not the right environment for me <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, so yeah, I that that's my theory on short fishermen. <laughs> I've done fire stuff, so I know how tough that can be. But I can imagine that, like, being wet also while you're trying to accomplish yeah. a physical task makes uh-huh. it exponentially more difficult. And yes. just like that's it's it's another level that you're just like, oh, like you know, I'll just be a little wet. It's fine. It's not fine, actually. No. It, it's it's and you it's got salt it- rash, and then you get carpal tunnel from doing all the stuff with your hands all the time it was awful like is it cold would it be cold when you were up there no it was it wasn't too cold but it was awful on my body but it was great on my mind like I loved it like emotionally I loved it you know like Mm -hmm. it was mentally I loved it it was beautiful and and being around orca all the time was amazing for me because I've always had this thing for orca like I'm I'm not an ocean person but I don't know if it's because I'm Irish or what, but I've always had this strong connection <laughs> with Orca. And like having Orca around me all the time was just, that was like, it was crazy. It was like going to church for three months. Oh, that's amazing. Were there any that you could like got to know and recognize or were they just too many of them or more frequent around it? It was the same pods. So it was the same ones over and over again. And it was funny because my boat captain was deaf from the engine, hmm. but he could still read lips pretty well. And so we didn't talk a whole lot, but the orca were coming so close up to the the boat all the time. I was like, and they're the same size as the boat because we're on a two-man troller. And I'm like, hey, did these orca ever sink a boat? You know, and I'm trying to mm-hmm. get him to understand me. And he's like, no. And I was like, oh, but you said that there's boats that sink every year. Why do they sink? And he's like, no one knows. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> I know. It's the orca. It's the orca. I know it's the orca. And so like, he's like, no, no. And I'm like, but you said they didn't know. I think I have the best hypothesis. They're right there. And if we get too many hooks in one of them, they will pull the boat underwater. He loved that. And so when I did the dry suit test, like when you get the dry suit and they jump you in the water, the life suit, they jump you in the water. They dumped me in the water where they knew there was going to be orca. So I was in the water with orca for a while. And that scared the crap out of me. Oh, yeah. That sounds incredible and terrifying. Orcas just sunk a yacht off of Morocco. It was a 45-minute ordeal. And when I see that, it's really vindicating. I'm like, see? You were right. You (laughs) predicted it. You knew. The orcas came to you and told you this prophecy. And you said, no one believed you. Do you think that they were following the boat? I've worked on not in a fishing context, but I've worked on a boat at sea before. And I remember there were a lot of animals, a lot of birds and some marine life that would follow the boat because we would kick up prey items. It was, was oh, yeah. it kind of a similar situation there or. Oh yeah. But we were usually on, on two person trollers. You're usually at the mouth of rivers. Mm-hmm. So there's sea lions there. There's orca there. There's bald eagle there. So like you're fishing with wildlife all around you. And the sea lions have like a different type of relationship with the fisher there. I didn't like it because I don't mm-hmm. like being mean to wildlife at all. I mean, sure. you're like, but didn't you kill thousands of salmon? But like, I didn't want to like throw these, they call them seal bombs at the seals and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But like, mm-hmm. there was a, a really like harsh relationship. And one of the things I used to tell fishermen down here too, because like a lot of times the sea lions get blamed for the salmon shortage. And mm-hmm. I, I, whenever I hear those arguments, I'm like, so the, the sea lion's fault that there's very few salmon. It's the wolf's fault that there's very few elk. And and then I'm like, but how come when the colonized, when this place got colonized, there was t- millions of salmon, but there's also millions of sea lions. And there was millions of elk, but there's also millions of wolves. So like this, this argument yeah. doesn't make any sense. Sure. It's because we've destroyed their habitat and got their numbers so low that now we are able to take account of natural processes 
and see them on paper and get to blame other things, but it's just, it's bullshit. And, and so I, I didn't like that whole relationship that people had with sea lions on the fishing boats. Yeah. So I'm like, it's not them. It's not their fault. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of properties of scale that aren't there to protect the system anymore. Mm-hmm. I always think of it when people like blame the sea lions or something. I imagine it as like, if you're trying to free up space on your phone and you like delete text messages instead of like the 12 gigabytes of videos <laughs> that you have, it's like the sea lions are the text messages. It's like, like, are they eating some of them? Sure. But like, really, the big problem with your storage space is you have 12 gigabytes of videos or more that you like don't need. And it's like the, that transfers into like the habitat loss and like fishing and everything. So it's like, it's like, yes, but like proportionally, it's not quite there. That's a great analogy for younger folks. I think people in my age and older would be like, gigabytes? What is <laughs> gigabyte? Is that what they call it when the seal eats the fish? Giga- gigabyte? It's, a giga, it's like a giga chad. It's a yeah. giga, it's like, that's, that's how we're measuring animal bite force going yeah. forward. Gigabytes. A completely different topic. Uh, you had an Animal Planet show for a while. What was that about? What was that like? Oh, that's, yeah, I forgot about that because... Okay, Animal Planet, Wild Jobs, yes. I loved that, but I wasn't ready because I wasn't trying to be an educator except to my crews. Like my crew, I worked for the California Conservation Corps. So like I had youth, I was a youth developer. And so that was my group and that's who I educated. And one day, one of the, the videos we did together went viral, like a fourth or fifth video they had me make because I was not into social media at all. Mm-hmm. But they were like, show us, we want to show our moms and you take pictures for your boss for project pictures. So can you just post them? So they created me a MySpace and a Facebook and a YouTube. And like the fifth or sixth video we uploaded went super viral. And so all of a sudden I started getting a lot of people wanting me to do things. And one of them was this production company wanted me to do a show. And I was like, well, I can't retire, but man, if we could work this out, I'd love to do it. So they called my bosses in the CCC and they worked it out so they could share me for a year. Uh, It was awesome. And I had the best. I was working with High Noon Productions. I love them. They are the coolest group of people and they're up in Colorado. So we did a 10 episode online show and I loved it, but I wasn't ready at the time. Like I, I mean, it's good. It ranked well, it did well. But after that, I ended up going to videos and doing tons of more videos. So I have more experience now. So I'd love to do it again. You hear me high noon? I can retire now. (laughs) (laughs) Full time now. We don't have to do no 10 episode online. We can go full time. I can retire right now. So yeah, I loved it. And one of the main things I loved about it was that I got driven to the doorstep of my heroes. I got fed, driven, woken up, picked up and delivered right to the door of my heroes. And all I had to do was like hug them and start talking and be friends. And that was the best experience ever. Like so many of the people in those episodes were just like, dedicated their whole entire life to helping wildlife. They are beautiful, beautiful souls. And I just felt so blessed. Every time I met one, I was just like a new hero or, and some of them were already my heroes that just happened to be also connected as a show. So like the Ojai Raptor Center, I'd already donated money for my book to them and I had never even met them. I just knew they did good work. So I got to do an episode with them and I didn't even plan that. So much coolness. I loved it. I would love to do that again because it was easy for me. When you're the host, it's easy. It's unscripted. So all I had to do is just go blah, blah, blah. And you guys could probably tell by now that I don't have a problem talking. <laughs> so, it's a good quality so, in a communicator. We, we, we learned a long time ago that unscripted is better. Yeah. Unscripted is better. Yeah. So 
I had fun. I loved it. I hope I get to do it again. I really hope I get a show again. I would love to do a show again just because it is so much fun. And it's a lot less work for me than it is for uh, all the production people. Yeah. I just get to show up. What, uh, what were some of the jobs you covered? Oh, uh, wildlife rehab. So we did like three or four wildlife rehab rehabilitation. So we did the Marine, uh, Marin uh, Wild Care, which is one of my favorite wildlife centers before that too. And then we went to Phoenix Herpetological Society where I met Stubbs, the alligator with a prosthetic tail. Oh, He just died. Isn't that awful? Aww. Yeah, but I loved him. He was so cute. And so him and I, we went to a lab and did fun measurements together. And I played with this other alligator called Pumpkin and helped uh, her on her therapy because she was a rescue from like a tiny cramped aquarium situation. And then I went out with a venom teacher and we stepped on rattlesnakes. Oh my gosh. And none of them struck. And, he, and uh, he told me none of them would strike, and they didn't. And uh, I've lived in rattlesnake country my whole entire life. I've never been bit, but I never try to pick them up either. And that's usually mm-hmm. when people get bit. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a – what else was there? There was a Gibbon Conservation Center, and that was amazing, amazing story. You should check out Gibbon Conservation Center. The story of the director is fascinating. And then what else was there? There was – Animal tracks, which was when the FBI or cops or whatever busts a drug dealer and he's got a pet tiger and a pet eagle and all that stuff, it goes to animal tracks. And so they they basically have they house exotic animals that can't be released into the wild, mm-hmm. but they don't want to put they don't want them to get put to sleep. So they're basically right. just like a retirement home. Yeah, those are the handful of of the ones that we did that I remember. We did a bunch that never made it to TV too, which is too bad because my favorite one that never made it to TV was. I worked with a Navajo shepherd for a day and that was one of the most intense experiences of my life. I can't believe that didn't make the cut. So what happened? What was it like? So I, I live and work among a lot of indigenous people and I have friends that are indigenous, like in Redwood Rising, our part, a lot of our partners are indigenous, a lot of the employees, mm-hmm. my coworkers are indigenous and the Yurok up here, I'm on Talawa land right now, but the Yurok and Talawa and Karuk people and the Hoopa people and the Wiat people, they were all world ceremony people. And they were contacted, and contacted is a nice word. They were invaded and enslaved and raped and massacred 150 years ago. And they, the survivors, super resilient cultures, and they were able to maintain a lot of their language and their traditions and their customs. And I thought that was an anomaly for Northern California and Alaska, parts of Oregon and Washington, because, you know, the East Coast tribes, you know, it was like hundreds and hundreds of years ago they got invaded so i wasn't expecting the navajo to be so traditional mm-hmm. and they are they're like the shepherd's parents didn't speak english i went to a zoo that was for unreleasable native wildlife and mostly like golden eagles and stuff that they used in ceremony so that the birds could just like naturally lose their feathers and they could just collect them and then they could give them to different shamans and stuff and they had this zoo that was all for that where none of the animals died but you could still use like hair or whatever feathers in ceremony i just thought that was the coolest and i love the navajo people like they're it's funny too because they speak Diné, which is the language of a lot of the tribes around here even though it's really far apart Hmm. and i kind of felt at home with the navajo right away and i don't know if that had anything to do with it but it was wonderful to spend time with them that sounds awesome if you could do another show would you want to do a similar kind of vibe where you just get to visit more places or would you have aspirations for like a different kind of structure to it? I would love to do the same exact show again, Wild Jobs, but there's several other shows I do. As long as they're conservation related and 
inspiring and get people to want to take action for the environment, I'm down, you know, I'm super down. I'll do it. It just has to be helpful. I don't want to do anything that's too just like cheesy, flashy, like, will this alligator bite him? You know, (laughs) I want to do like, how can we improve this habitat for our alligators? You know, maybe we should remove some pythons or, you know, whatever. Like, I would be more into like doing real work, real restoration, and then feature people on the ground, the people who are doing the work. That's what I liked about Wild Jobs. There was a new co-star every episode. And that's what I really liked. Like these people, really, we got to elevate them and, and help. And it helped them because they would get more funding after we left, you know, after it showed and stuff. So yeah. I'd like to do something like that, especially if it was related to like restoration or natural resource interpretation. I'd like to do shows like that, too. Yeah. Being able to highlight the work that these people are doing and help them get the word out. Because sometimes, you know, I've done all the jobs where, you know, the the boots on the ground, that is some of the most important work. It's not always flashy or you don't get the notoriety and stuff, but it's like some of the most important stuff that you can do. And it's also really interesting. And I think also, especially like when I was a kid, they were like, what jobs do you want to do? And everyone's like, I want to be a firefighter or a doctor or a lawyer. No one tells you that you can do restoration work. You can do, yeah. there's so many different or, you know, I remember studying wildlife ecology and people would be like, so are you going to be a park ranger? And I'm like, well, I mean, I could be, but like, that's not the only thing out there. Yeah. Um, and there's just a whole bunch of different jobs that people don't even realize that, you know, need good people and, and are, you know, so helpful for the environment. So it's great to be able to like give them a little. Remember as a kid always being like, I like animals. I like animals. I like animals. And everybody's going to be like, you want to be a veterinarian? Yeah, like, <laughs> I like I like yeah. people. I'm not going to be a doctor. Like not, yeah. <laughs> I'm not dissing any of those jobs. I'm just saying that's not the trajectory I ever envisioned myself. Yeah, and now I get paid to make memes. Restoration jobs are new though, too. It's it's not something your grandfather is going to tell you about mm-hmm. um, because they didn't exist in the, in his day. Yeah. You know, res- restoration jobs are really new. I mean, even ecological restoration majors at college is, is relatively new. Yeah. But it's something that's, it can't stay new. It can't stay small. It has to be big. We need to do restoration on a huge scale. I often say, like, this is the restoration generation, like the college students now. Like, we really need way more money for restoration for a million reasons why. And it should never be a partisan issue or anything like that. United States got big and powerful for a lot of reasons. And many of those reasons were dubious, okay? Granted. But part of it was the amount of resources, and we used 95% of the old growth redwood forest to boost us. We used like 99% of the eastern forest to boost uh-huh. us. We've used damming rivers to boost us. We had so many salmon, we were giving them away for free, like government cans of salmon. And so a lot of these abundances that were taken from the indigenous people made America rich. And we don't have those anymore. So we need to bring them back. Another reason why I worked on that fishing boat is because I didn't want to be the first male in my family not to work on a fishing boat. You know, oh, was, yeah. I already had the first male, not the military title. So I didn't want both of those titles. You know what I'm saying? Didn't want to rack up that many superlatives. <laughs> <laughs> and so a goal of mine is to bring back the salmon fishery to California. You know, it's like, I'm not an animal rights activist. I think a lot of people think that I am. I'm a humane. Everything uh-huh. should be humanely treated. I don't even think that, you know, nothing should be killed disrespectfully. But I want there to be so many salmon in California that we have a robust commercial fishery. And I think that that's a great goal. And that's the goal we should be going towards. And it's happening. I mean, the Klamath dams are coming down thanks to a big group of people, especially the Yurok tribe. 
and dams are coming down all over the West Coast. Like, it's not too late. I think we're going to be able to fix this, but there's going to have to be more money for restoration. And it's going to take Republicans wanting restoration, Democrats wanting restoration. Like, we need to allocate the money for it. It makes sense because it's good for our long-term economy, super good for our long-term economy, not to mention all the mental and spiritual benefits. Oh, yeah. And the, and the cultural benefits. I mean, just the reintroduction of the condor to this area has been amazing. They just released three more yesterday, too. So there's now 11 condors. Exciting. Yes. And our Redwood Rising is creating habitat for those condors. So by making big trees, which the condors nest in, but also by reopening a lot of grasslands, reintroducing traditional ecological knowledge like the Native Americans burning. And so that's creating more habitat for the things that the condors scavenge. That's such an inspiring vision of the future. Io, you did a lot of prescribed burns, right? I did. I uh, worked with the Nature Conservancy for a little bit and did some prescribed burns. We worked a lot with the Forest Service in Where the was area. That at? It was in Southern Illinois. Oh, cool. Um, which was quite very interesting. And it was really cool because I think fire is, it's one of those things where I think a, a lot of times disturbances like fire or storms or, you know, just anything that can change an ecosystem like that, they're often painted with a negative brush like even the word disturbance is kind of like a negative connotation but yeah. really we used to have so much talk about fire we used to have so much more fire on the landscape than we yeah. do now and it is so important for a variety of things i mean growing in florida the longleaf pine ecosystem requires fire i've worked up in the northeast where they also had some pines that you know required fire just the prairies and the so much of it requires this periodic burning because it's sort of like if things don't get unchecked or you know things continue unchecked you know then you get different kinds of ecosystems come in so it's like instead of being a prairie now it's you know all oaks or something which maybe oaks are fine but being able to have that help restore the ecosystem is great and it also the benefits of like preventing more devastating fires because when you have lots of smaller more prescribed burns, it helps, but also helping to restore the cultures and stuff. There was a podcast I was listening to a little bit. I haven't caught up on the like newest season, but it was called Good Fire, where they talked to different indigenous groups around the world and their fire practices. It was really cool. They the first episode I think was about Aboriginal burning in Australia, which was really cool. And you know, California and the West Coast of the United States gets a whole lot of attention for that. But being able to and, you know, it's a whole project. And so I my experience mainly is with like the the government style of burning, which I know is different from some of the Native American style of burning. So I don't have any experience with that. But being able to bring that back to the landscape, I'm like, this is good restoration. And burning is also often faster and cheaper than doing herbicide <laughs> or manual removal or something like that. Like if you can have, you know, a helicopter do it, you know, and you can get a, a couple thousand acres in a day versus like if you were trying to like hand remove some of mm -hmm. that stuff, it's going to take forever and be and way more disturbance expensive. and human caused disturbance is a bridge that needs to be built between conservationists in action. And what yeah. I mean by that is like, there was no wilderness in California until this place was colonized because every square inch of California was managed by humans. And the indigenous people don't call it management. They call it having a relationship with. Different tribes have different ways of, of describing it. But ever since the ice age, California has been touched by humans and gardened. Pretty much the whole state got gardened. And 
Also, what another thing people don't realize it was it wasn't just the fires that was disturbance. We had Pleistocene megafauna here, which is why I love the Pleistocene rewilders. You guys should have some of those on your show, on your podcast. I've I've been looking at a couple of them. There's a few people that I've sent emails to. I love the stuff they come up with. There's this park called Mammoth Rock in California, and the rock is super, super smooth. And no one could really figure out why until they started looking at underneath the rock was this indentation, like this vernal pool around the rocks. They looked at this vernal pool and they started pulling out like hundreds of generations of mammoth hair, you know? So like the mammoth, this was on their migratory route. They would stop and they would, and they would rub on this rock until they polished it smooth. And then they would wallow in this mud right next to it. And so it made us relook at vernal pools all over the United States. How many vernal pools were actually caused by Pleistocene megafauna holes, like watering holes and stuff like that? A lot of those. You just blew my mind. Yeah, isn't that I've got, I've got a ton in my area and I do environmental education that often centers around vernal pools. I mean, oh, that's awesome. like That was like one of my biggest like nature moments was the first time I had a big night salamander migration. And to think like some of these could be, wow. <laughs> yeah and that's that. i would i want to see more of those studies because there's vernal pools caused by different things but some of the vernal pools could be pleistocene megafauna created but there was probably a lot more so there's probably like chains of vernal pools along their migration routes mm-hmm. which means there would have been chains of like fairy shrimp and salamanders and so many different types of endemic plants that don't didn't grow anywhere else except for that particular vernal pool and so like i would love to be spider-man and go back in time to the Pleistocene megafauna era. I think that would be the best. I think you'd have to be Spider-Man to survive it, but that's would be my number one wish if I got to a, a heaven and they're like, what do you want to do? I'd have been like, Spider-Man, California, Pleistocene megafauna era, put me somewhere around the existing La Brea tar pits and I would go there because <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Another thing is like, people don't think about, you know, they think about fire ecology and like, how come so many of the California plants stump sprout and they stump sprout because, you know, they evolved with fire. We have pyrophilic plants. We have serotonous mm-hmm. cones that won't even like open up and drop their seeds unless mm-hmm. they catch on fire. Right. But another thing is a lot of the plants that can stump sprout are riparian. And so you're like, huh, so they burnt enough too, huh? And I started talking to someone about it and they're like, oh, well, you know what? They also evolved with uh, elephants for millions of years. Right. And, and elephants <laughs> destroy trees. So these <laughs> plants could be adapted for elephant damage. Mammoth damage, mastodon damage, you know, camelop, the giant camels that lived here, and the quagga, all these things were destroying trees. And so I think a lot of our plant adaptions we have today are echoes of, of historical disturbance. One of my favorite yeah. theories for why cypress trees make knees is that it's an anti-mammoth, anti-mega herbivore adaptation. Like they didn't they didn't want to get girdled from things trying to eat their bark. So they put up all these knees everywhere and make it just oh, harder to pass through the area. Ooh, I like that. Oh, you could say that about redwoods too. Because redwoods do that hairy stump sprouting and they get rubbed. They yeah. probably got rubbed a lot too. Yeah. That's, a, that's interesting. I know they're the same family. So do they make knees like that or do they? What are you calling kind of knees? Knees sounds like a, a geographic term. Oh, okay. So in the Southeast, our cypress trees will make these, they'll have root systems that are very flat to support the tree, like it goes wide. And then for a a large part of that fan, they have these growths that they look kind of like a bent leg and they go, but I mean, that's a very, very, very loose analogy, but they, they just go straight up and they can be anywhere from like a couple inches tall to like, I don't know, four feet tall, something like that. 
And okay. it, it's everywhere, anywhere, any swamp you go to, you'll see these in the southeast. Got to be careful when you're walking because you will stub your toes and trip on them if you are not careful. And I have done a million times. I broke my big toe on a cypress knee once. Oh, no. But it was about, about two inches tall, just barely. is the only one around me. And I just slammed right into it. But it's not well established why they actually exist. And one of the hypotheses is that they develop as an anti-herbivore device. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Pleistocene rewilding is fascinating. And I'm one of those people who secretly hope they bring back a man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's not secret for me. That's that's a, that's a common point of conversation for me. When they do, you can go with your TV show and talk to them about how they did it and get more people interested in that, you know restoration. It's coming full circle. Oh, yeah, that would be a dream come true. Until then, Griff, what do you want to plug? What are you working on now? So working on Redwood Rising will be a constant. I think, I'm, I'm hoping it'll be a constant. I really like being the spokesperson. My funding runs out in March. And so if they don't get more funding, maybe I'll be doing something different. Future employers, I hope you all heard that. It might be mm -hmm. available. I'm definitely working on Jumpstart Nature podcast with Michael Hawk. And Michael Hawk is an interesting character. I know you guys have met him, been on a show as a Nature Archive podcast. But him and I are opposites in that. Um, are you familiar with Myers-Briggs personality? Yes. yes. I, I know that some people say that it's, it's not accurate, but for him and I, it's super accurate. Because if you looked at the ENFP personality type, that's pretty much me. That's how unoriginal I am. They could just take off ENFP and put Griff and it would, and it would, be, <laughs> it would be a description of me. And, um, and the same thing could be said for him with INTJ. So I'm an extrovert. I'm kind of all over the place, blah, 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 you know, and like to teach and talk and have my intellectual curiosities. And INTJs are more focused. They're intellectuals. They're introverts. They're into details and planning. So him and I mesh really well. We're a very, very good team. Mm. And so I'm hoping to do as much as possible with him because we match so well. And then, so I'll be working on Jumpstart Nature stuff and we're going to be packaging classes, selling educational packages too, because with awesome. social media, I'm pretty good at social media. I learned the hard way after not knowing anything about technology. And, and so when I applied everything I've learned to Redwood Rising, I got half a million followers in six months. That's so amazing. pretty wow. good at this now. Yeah, yeah. pretty good. And um, so we're going to do a social media package, but we're going to do different packages, mostly around like educational packages around interpretation like getting people to want to be conservationists, getting people to want to connect to nature, getting people to want to love wildlife and want to take action to protect them. Yeah. And so that's like a major jumpstart nature. And then continuing with all my other conservation work, I'm trying to make, I'm trying to like volunteer less and start getting paid more now that I'm on the brink of retirement and Amen. still don't have a lot of money. <laughs> a motto for everyone. <laughs> anyone, anyone involved in wildlife, anything. Yeah. That's the thing is you can't like there you're not going to get rich being trying to save the world you know you're really not <laughs> so yeah and that's why i i'm actually blessed not to have kids because some of my friends that have kids struggle way harder than i do mm -hmm. but not having kids has made it where i'm able to dedicate my life to conservation but there are pain there are good paying jobs i don't want to scare people but but yeah i'll be doing less volunteering and trying to trying to get paid for the work that i would do anyways True. and that's what a dream yeah. job is a dream job is getting paid for something you do for free. So, but now that I'm getting old, it's not like I can go be back and be a firefighter for a couple of seasons. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like I'm going to jump on the, the fishing boat so I can make $15,000 in a couple months. You know, yeah. those days are over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
those jobs they can be can, they can be brutal i know so thank you so much for coming on to talk with us this has been amazing yeah let me let me shout myself out to your followers yes, a little please. bit more. where can people find you tiktok and facebook at griff wild at griff wild and then redwood rising so on tiktok and facebook at redwoods rising and that's the best place to find me is on social media that's our show. Thanks for listening. If you want some Wild Green merch, check it out at wildgreenmemes.com. And if you want a fun gift in the mail every month and your name at the end of this podcast, just go over to patreon.com slash wildgreenmemes. That's memes with an M and join our Patreon. Until next time, I'm Rhett. I'm Io. I'm Curtis. And I'm Griff. And happy year of the raccoon.